Hello and welcome, independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind, the Shadow Citizen. Welcome to episode 10 with guest Ben Davidson of Space Weather News. You can listen to our live broadcast and chat along at mixlr.com slash forward shadow citizen. We are also simulcast on Radio Confluence, and from there you can take us with you on TuneIn and Xeno Live. For a schedule of upcoming guests and past archives, please go to shadowcitizen.online. And now we have some cool merchandise there that you can pick up as well, your T-shirts and coffee cups. My name is Rob O'Sell, and my co-host is... Rachel L. McIntosh. And today we have Ben Davidson. I am so excited about this guy. I hunted him down because he does a thing called Space and Weather News, and he also has Suspicious Observers, and that's where I hooked up with this. Um, He also does a thing called the Mobile Observatory Project, and he has two peer-reviewed works on solar terrestrial physics. And he produces one of the most watched space weather programs in the world. And has more than 75, is it million? It has 75 million views on the internet. Ben is credited with predicting a number of earthquakes in 2016 using the signals of the Earth's and the Sun's energetic interactions with the Earth. And I'm very, very pleased to have him with us today because he's going to talk to us about climate change, global warming, extreme weather, harp, all these cool things. Ben, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Very much a pleasure. Oh, good. Hey, now, what I was initially interested in with you specifically is how you got to be doing what you're doing. I go to Suspicious Observers every day. I love the music. The theme music over there is awesome. And... I real I came to find out you didn't go to school to be a weatherman or anything like that. How did you end up doing this? Oh well, I'll try to get through uh, a long story as fast as I can. Uh, it's a number of having the a number of times where the wheel has been jerked to the side in my life. So I start uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, uh, dual majoring. Actually, one of the majors was meteorology. The other one was economics, and. I quickly became disenchanted with meteorology and especially uh, with the lack of professors willing to listen when I said, hey guys, you know those you know, 20 to 50% of days when you don't get the weather right? I think this is why. Um, and uh, it really sort of forced me to change my way of thinking. And so I left the world of weather and science for a while, kept going in economics, uh, got a law degree. Mm-hmm but quickly realized uh, through uh, an internship at the Supreme Court of Ohio and then a more standard private law firm that being a lawyer was not for me uh, in terms of the lifestyle or the mindset required to be a lawyer, you know, answer an email or a phone call, bill an hour, leave every day at two o'clock to go play golf and somehow still bill 70 hours a week kind of stuff. Uh I went into the... uh, research realm, which is one of the things lawyers are actually best suited to do. Uh, I ended up working for an investment firm that, you know, it it called it portfolio diversification, but portfolio diversification to your lead researcher seems like a lack of focus that makes you learn a new thing every, you know, every couple of weeks. But fortunately, they were into mining opportunities. 
they were into biopharmaceuticals and other technology uh, opportunities. And so this really got me back into science because it's not just knowing the business side of it, the legal side of it, but you have to, you know, the investors have to become experts in whatever it is they're investing in. And so I quickly realized that some of the stuff that I was getting interested in online really lent itself to the type of research I did, especially since the world has been focused on specialization, you know, ultra specialization. And uh, there really has been a lack of appreciation for a renaissance type thinking and an interdisciplinary point of view outside of the world of being a lawyer and investing in, in business opportunities. And really, I've decided, hey, let's bring that to science and see if it does anything cool. And before I knew it, I had 100,000 people watching the channel. <laughs> uh, we, we were getting emails from professors, uh, a couple of uh, folks from places like NASA and USGS. And we decided, hey, this is uh, time to jerk the wheel once more. And so I hung up the suit and the nice paycheck, but I'm a lot, lot happier now doing uh, doing stuff that really actually excites passion. And, and my wife is going to get to do it with my wife, which is the best part. And That's I, awesome. Can I jump in real quick here since it's kind of uh, – we're touching on it right here. But this – you know, I was trained uh, in the scientific method, you know, you, and I'm not going to go into the detail of that. But, but it seems like today all of the research is kind of like outcome-based financing. And since you're – you know, in, you've got a double major that's kind of in both of those, uh, can you speak to that at all, this uh, – you know, which – you know, this climate change, you know, everybody's talking about uh, – uh, you know, global warming being human caused, and your big thing is, you know, the sun is affecting our weather, but uh, the human caused global warming to me seems like it's outcome based financing. Uh, any comment on that? Well, you're absolutely right, but it is worth noting that after the disagreements with my professors, uh, I, I did just focus on economics and I left science aside for, for a while until I got back into it in the investing realm, sort of uh, out of necessity. Uh, and so I, I don't have any degrees in meteorology. And frankly, I think I would have to be constantly deleting wrong information from my files if I had to, uh, you know, if I had gotten that. And I'm actually glad that I, I sort of came at this world from completely outside of it. I have no science degrees, but um, what lawyers are actually trained to do, and lawyers don't like admitting this, uh, but they're really just uh, trained research rats, but the best of that kind in the world because nobody can memorize every law. Uh, you have to know and understand what sorts of laws apply to the situation that's been presented to you. You have to go find answers. Sometimes they're written as laws, but sometimes they're written as complex court opinions by judges who like to sound as smart as possible. And then you have to take all that information, bring it back together, and communicate it in a way that really uh, not only is the essence of truth, but communicates it in a way that people understand it. And so um, that is absolutely lost in science right now. Um, to, to be a leader in, in a field right now, you have neither the time nor the willpower to pick your head up and look around. You have to basically just drive forward and be laser-like focused on stuff like that. And frankly, going to law school uh, – broke me into that world and then actually applying that in the investing world because you have to basically master, all right, how's this business going to be set up and how's everything going to work? What are the legal aspects? Is there intellectual property? What laws or regulations are going to apply to us? Things like that. But then there's, 
all right, well, if this is a mining opportunity, we have to know everything there is about mining and geology and other stuff like that. If it's a pharmaceutical, we have to know everything about the organic chemistry, the electrophysics at the blood level, things like that. Uh, and when you can start, you know, I don't want to go through a whole list like that, but when you start to think in that way, you're like, okay, wait a minute. That is something that leaders of fields do not do. They cannot do to get to where they are or once they are where they are, if they want to keep their positions, if they want to keep their funding, if they want to keep, you know, projects rolling and, and other stuff like that. The two are incompatible with one another. And so I brought that world to science and people uh, both, you know, what I would call the, the layman, the common people like myself and folks who, uh, really, you know, anybody should listen to like, uh, like a NASA engineer or somebody who works, uh, in, in the Southeast, uh, USGS offices, things like that. Um, and, and who is open to, to new ideas and open to changing their mind when evidence is presented to them, which is exactly the thing that is lacking from many of those officials that uh, angers so many people because there are those diamonds in the rough that actually will will listen and it's amazing how much more effective coming at it from this angle is than trying to break down uh, the front gates you know our, our community has a bad habit of trying to beat down the front gates we've been doing it for a long time and it hasn't been working if you guys want you can keep that distraction going i'm going to go try that wall over there it looks like i can get a good somebody has to be doing that distraction somebody has to be beating that wall at the right. front to make sure they're looking that way well speaking of this whole distraction thing when you go online and you do the sus suspicious observers in the morning when i watch it I always feel like I'm getting smarter just by looking at you, the naps you're showing us and the way you're talking to us as if we're not stupid. Um, and some of the things, I, I didn't realize that it would be so controversial what you were doing, but then I picked up the fact like, wow, people are getting upset by this. Um, specifically, what's the biggest thing that makes people upset about sus suspicious observers and space, space weather news? Uh, it, it's a, it would probably be... Um you know, I, I would say if I had to pick one thing, the climate thing is the biggest. Right. And it's really because uh, some folks, based not on my words, but just based on the fact that I went against, you know, the the climate change uh, dogma that mm -hmm. exists in the mainstream, you know, sort of labeled a denier and, and all this and that. When in reality, what I say is this, um, I really don't disagree with any of the advice to humans that comes out of the mainstream global warming paradigm. The, you need to stop wasting so much. We need to find ways of being more efficient. We need to take better care of our planet and we should take better care of the air we breathe and the water we drink, et cetera, et cetera. It, I really can't find any arguments with any of those things and nothing I'm about to say should be misconstrued as uh, an argument for policy changes or you know, getting rid of the EPA entirely. Uh, which probably isn't a good idea. Um, you know, uh, what it really is is the fact that uh, humans are a contributor to this ecosystem. Every input to a system is going to affect the outcome. That is how the universe works. Uh, but the question is to what extent? And the timeline that the mainstream chooses to use, as if there was no weather or temperature records before 1880, 
when in fact they're actually quite robust at this point. And the fidgeting of the data by, by some folks who have been entrusted by our government to you know, uh, parent and protect that data. Uh, I mean, things like Climate Gate, where those emails were hacked, and yeah, okay, there were some illegal things that went on in order for us to get this information, and uh, that should be dealt with. But at the same time, uh, there's no question that the people in charge of climate data saw that things weren't working out, came up with a plan, discussed the plan to fix the data to make it one look like it was more warming faster than it was, and two, uh, delete. Uh, some of the past warming and try to make the past look colder than mm-hmm. it actually was so that the, the current time looks warmer. Um, you know, that stuff has, has absolutely been going on. They've been caught doing it. Um, we keep hearing about it over and over again. And, you know, I kept in touch with some of my friends uh, who were in the meteorology major after I I left. I not only left the major, I, I left the school, and I, I actually ended up moving from Penn State to, to Denison University, which is in Ohio. But I don't know if you know anything about Penn State. That's where AccuWeather's based. Um, uh-huh. I have some good friends who have moved up and are uh, not exactly out of the loop, uh, so to speak, and uh, who haven't been out of the loop at some of the, uh, the involvement with the UN's IPCC. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, back then they – they were still, and you know, they kind of still are nobodies. Uh, I can say that and laugh because they're my friend. That they, I don't know if they're ever going to hear this. <laughs> and they're listening now. I've, yeah. I found all of their emails, and let's call them right now. Right. No, go ahead, continue. Uh, but you know, they uh, they would tell me that you know the stuff that we used to talk about, like it was absolutely real, and it was way worse than we ever could have imagined. You know, we would talk about like, hey, like, wouldn't it be? funny if like the explanation for this was that like it's some like conspiracy to like control climate change discourse and other stuff like that like we hypothesized about that stuff because uh, that's the kind of 20 year olds we were i suppose right just hanging uh, out all right yeah uh, I, I don't know if that's normal for 20 year olds but that's what we did and i, you know, I think they, it pretty were, much is yeah <laughs> they they had you know some of them had uh, wives and kids already. They had loans to get into undergrad. I don't even want to think about what graduate school did to them. They weren't in a position to do something that was going to, uh, as they were told, jeopardize their ability to get funding, be part of these projects, and even have a job at a later date. And of course, we've seen that happening. People have been blackballed. Jobs have been lost. Right. Uh, you know, friends have ostracized their peers. Um, and when they told me about this, they were telling me about this as they were preparing for the 2012 release when they were like, look, we came back with very, very rigorously, thoroughly checked results. And we were basically just told this has to be modified to comport with the story or one, they probably won't include it. And two, you're, we're not going to be invited back here next time. Uh, mm, so, my gosh. So, it's, so you have friends that literally had that told to them this is this is pretty much what they were told yeah um oh wow okay it was a very long uh conversation well multiple long conversations i've had with each of them uh, i'm very much summarizing and doing my best not to get anybody in trouble right you don't want to have anybody who no, I, yeah, go ahead <laughs> i no, get it go ahead regurgitate the whole conversation here but it was amazing because i started you know they were saying 
it's about the sun, but moreover, it's about what the sun does to cosmic rays and how they affect clouds and uh, about the the biggest thing that really matters down here on the ground is whether or not the ice is confined to the poles, in which case the planet will warm, or whether the ice starts to melt at the poles and starts to chill some of the southern waters and sends us into an ice age. And uh, anybody who knows or has been following the climate discourse can pretty much see that what they have been saying and what I just said are diametrically opposed things. Okay. Uh, well, so that pretty much confirms that, yeah, there's still good science being done at the ground, you know, at the roots level, and the, in, but the, the information isn't released if it doesn't go along with whatever the main agenda is. And so we have a, a bureaucratic level in there that says, well, if we want to get funding, you know, we have to come up with these results. And so it is $30 billion a year business to yeah. be in the man-made global warming promotion. Uh, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, policy arguments, whether you're an NGO trying to get funding to do something like put in a bike program so people, you know, drive less, you know, anything from as simple as that to getting funding research in the hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars, you know, to, to actually do this research. Uh, all of that is a $30 billion a year business. And well, that, that would kind of make sense because remember, you probably remember this very clearly. I sort of remember it. They had these three different satellites that were going to go up. They were getting ready to shoot them up and they were going to triangulate. It was going to be China, United States, and maybe Russia probably. And all of us were, all these satellites were going to triangulate and they'd figure out what was happening with global warming. And then two of the, sat what is it? Two of the rockets blew up. Yeah, well, those those countries which uh, you know the countries that which we're always supposed to go to war with, um, and, and I'm not talking about the ones we're supposed to go in and dominate because, like for example, if we you know were to go in to say Iran, uh, mm -hmm. that, that it would be a war, but not like it would be a war if we tried to go into Russia or China. You know, th there's a difference between a war and what is uh, an inevitable takeover. Uh, and so if we're talking about the countries that we're allegedly supposed to actually have like cataclysmic war with, and mm -hmm. then you go and you take a look at their Antarctic stations, you notice that as clearly as you can pick out their Antarctic stations, if you zoom in on the map, what you can see far, far more zoomed out is the tracks between them. There is just a constant flow of people and goods between the United States, the Russian, and the Chinese stations down there. Whatever is really important is not being talked about and is being done down at the bottom of the world. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it, it's almost like whatever we can do to get the people to think we are not working together, we are on the verge of killing each other, anything we can do to get the people to think that, let's do it. I exactly. Know I know. I was just at NASA recently. And I, to Kennedy Space Center, I brought the kids and the kids and I were very surprised to see all these different flags from all these different countries. Like, oh, wow, we actually all are focused on the same thing that, wow, you guys are working together. Wow, that's pretty cool. You know, because they keep everybody in the state of, wow, we're we're um, we don't like this country. We don't like them. We don't like them. But in the science field, people are working together and it's it's kind of jarring when you finally figure that out it absolutely is you know there was a, a documentary it, i would classify it as a mockumentary made by bill maher years ago called mm -hmm. religious 
and and this was this was a very I mean it was a very disrespectful movie to anybody who has religious faith. But there was one scene that um, it, it wasn't about religion at all. It was utterly poignant, and it was about the conflict or the perceived conflict between peoples. Um, and Bill Maher was asking this this prominent Islamic leader about. Uh, their hatred of Jews and they're wanting to exterminate Jews from the planet. And, and he was like, no, no, no. In, in reality, it's just peace, peace, peace. And then the very end of the thing, uh, after, after they sort of cut, but you know, they actually keep the sound rolling, you can hear the guy say, uh, it's all politics. Bill, you are not so smart. Almost like it's like they have to put on this show. Yeah, sometimes they take it over the line and they actually, you know, use combat but that is you know that has a million reasons and it's nowhere near as uh as often used or as effective as simply just giving these people something that they're that they think they're fighting for because that actually helps them gain focus and uh i I hate to put it so bluntly but in in the eyes of the people in charge not worry so much about how terrible their lives are before we lose uh, the rest of our time here, this is going by way too fast. But, uh, you know, I love your you do so much work on just covering what the sun is doing every day. And so a lot of us feel that the sun has as much to do with climate change as anything. And do you want to give, you know, some of a breakdown of it? Because you have some interesting theories on on what, you know, what the sun is and what it's doing. And before our show, you kind of said that, hey, you know, we're way overdue for some uh some stuff coming from the sun that we're probably not prepared for, but should we switch subject here? Well, you know, it's, it's not really a switching of subjects, but, uh, it's, uh, it's perhaps a broadening and a let's, let's sort of settle in and get serious here about it because it's a serious topic and the, the planet and humans specifically are about to be tested. Like we haven't been tested in a very long time. The kind of stuff our ancestors used to write about, you know, those, those geniuses in our past who, you know, gave us the foundations for geometry, architecture, philosophy, but, you know, their most important stories, their stories about the cataclysms on earth. We, we completely ignore those and we don't give those much credit. Well, we're about to find out that they were absolutely right and we should have been listening to them because what has happened over the last, oh, 400 years specifically and moreover, over the last uh, few thousand years to a lesser extent, is the Earth has been a cocoon for life. This has been one of the most benign times uh, that we can determine from not only historical accounts from people, but geologic records, things like that. We have enjoyed an ultra-powerful magnetic field. Now, it peaked 3,000 years ago, but it was ultra strong until just a few hundred years ago when it started to weaken. It wasn't weakening very fast. We'll come back to that in a moment. But during the last few hundred years specifically, the sun has just been giving us everything we need to have a perfectly uh, nice, benign environment to grow up in as a species. And when you think about how much we've grown up in the last 400 years, Compared to the last 4,000 or, you know, any time before that, it really is quite a thing. We have been in what turns out to be the strongest grand solar maximum of the last 11,000 years. Now, what does that mean? 
A grand solar cycle is approximately 400 years. There's about a, you know, there's about 11 year sunspot cycle on the sun where we get a lot of sunspots and then we get very few and the sun seems quieter and that's about 11 years. Over about 200 years, we have a period of high activity and low activity that sort of oscillates a little bit, but every 400 years it seems to sort of sync up with itself in a harmonic of itself. And we have this grand maximum and grand minimum cycle where we're sort of in this period of extended quiet where even the 11-year cycle doesn't bring us many sunspots. It's just quiet for decades. And then we build up and we build up to a maximum and then we sharply drop back off into the minimum a few hundred years later. We don't always go up as high every time and we don't always dip down as low every time. But what we just experienced this last few hundred years was the strongest solar activity of the last 11,000. And it matches up perfectly, peaking somewhere between 1950 and about, you know, somewhere around the year 2000 or so, uh, during the zenith of, of, you know, period of global warming, right when, uh, you know, right when things were really starting to shift from, you know, in the 70s, people were worried about an ice age and global right. cooling. Well, uh, you know, th things have shifted now. But interestingly, there has been this talk recently about, hey, maybe, maybe this thing needs to be rethought. There is the global warming pause, which some scientists are doing everything they can to say isn't real or the, ocean, the oceans just ate the heat. But the fact of the matter is uh, the head of the IPCC, Dr. Pachari, had to quit. And we are now approaching, what, 21 or 22 years of utterly failed uh, global temperature predictions. In fact, they were able to say that we've had record temperatures the last couple of years, but what they don't tell you is that the record temperatures that were forecast were way, way higher than that. And what it took to get them just to there was the strongest El Nino on record. And, mm. they, and they still couldn't sniff the predictions of what they thought was going to happen without an El Nino. So the fact of the matter is something has been happening over the last two decades. Well, that's about when the sun decided it was not going to be at maximum anymore. And remember how I said it builds up to a maximum and then sharply drops off? Mm -hmm. Well, that sharp drop off perfectly coincides with what people are arguing is a global warming pause. And for the people who say, oh, it's not a pause, this is when the temperature prediction started to fail cataclysmically. And, you know, I was in that boat, you know, in, in terms of the, the advice to humans, I've already told you, I'm still in the advice to humans boat, but I was in the global warming. We need to do this. We need to do that. And here's why. But I, I can't sit here and try to argue that the temperature predictions were correct because they were utter failures for 20 years. And so this new evidence has to change my thinking and my point of view. And when you see something as perfectly correlated as the sun, when this global warming fear had a zenith that hadn't been matched on the sun in 11,000 years. And when the sun's drop off from that maximum perfectly coincides with the global warming pause. And what I'm sure people haven't noticed is a continuation of record cold and record snow all across the globe. It hasn't happened in the U.S. in a couple of years because it's been battering Siberia and the Middle East. The Middle East has had just the worst couple of years uh, and even into Southeast Asia as well in terms of um, how cold their winter is getting. 
you know, there's no heat in the country of Taiwan, and it froze twice in the last two years. And I'm going to bust in right here if I can, because there are certain people, you know, that are saying, forget global warming, you know, we're headed to the next ice age. Do you want to address that at all? You know, I wouldn't say we're headed we're headed to a full ice age, although it's not impossible. A mini ice age, like we saw uh, during the last solar grand minimum, uh, isn't impossible. Uh, here's the thing that really worries me, um, and this is the thing that people need to understand. It's a couple components, and this is what could. Um, I, I guess I'll preface this by saying could kill tens to hundreds of millions of people in the next few decades. Um, uh, okay, and, so that's that's pretty big. What you're about to say, that's a big thing. Yeah, I, I would say so, and it's it's a confluence of events that are not very good, uh, and that is the collapse of Earth's magnetic field and the sun entering a grand minimum, which are two things that we would never want to see at the same time. But before we get to that, we have to start with this little thing called albedo, because this is the real key to Earth's climate whether we're going to warm, whether we're going to get cooler. Albedo is the key. Now, what is albedo? Albedo yeah, what's albedo? I've never even heard of that. What is it? It's the reflectivity of the planet. Do we reflect the solar energy or do we absorb it? Now, remember how I said, when the ice is confined to the poles, the planet warms. When the ice begins to melt and Okay, yeah, it's not quite as thick at the poles, but in wintertime, we have all this cool, fresh water in the southern oceans. In the wintertime, we actually get record surface ice, which we've been seeing in Antarctica over the past few years. And it's sort of a cycle where it'll be records for a few years, it'll die back, but then the records will be broken again, die back, broken again, die back. That is actually triggered by the warming that occurs when the ice is confined to the poles. It's a natural cycle. And the problem with it is, eventually, the ice reaches a critical latitude. Now, at the poles, the ice doesn't reflect very much light, but you put that ice, you know, up, you know, where it's touching the tip of Africa, that alone would be enough reflection to send the southern hemisphere into a cataclysmic ice age, you know, type scenario during a winter that it wouldn't be able to recover from. The sun just would not be able to get that energy in because of all the ice that accumulated in winter. And then once the southern hemisphere had uh, you know, a run like that, it would happen to the north simply because you can't have something happen to half the planet and not have it affect the other half. And so uh, this is what we've been seeing. You know, the long-term cycle is you know, the, the planet uh, you know, heats up when the ice is confined to the poles and then that starts to melt the ice and it cools and cools and freshens the southern oceans and probably the northern oceans as well. But I think a lot of this may start in the south. Um, and, you know, that really helps to drive things going. But the reason why it drives it is because ice is white reflective water as opposed to more absorptive ocean liquid or land mass or trees or things like that. And that's where this gets critical because normally that cycle I just described does absolutely take 100,000 years. If okay. nothing else kicks it off, you know, it absolutely does. Now, can humans maybe slightly affect that? Sure, except all of the, you know, most of the melting that we're seeing right now is caused by uh, underwater volcanoes, which uh, the University of Texas has done extensive and unquestionable research on. But 
it's that concept that ice is what sends us, you know, the, the warming of the planet is what sends us into the ice age because it melts the poles and it sends that, you know, it, it breaks off, um, you know, giant chunks of glaciers and people are like, Oh my God, the planet's warming, but I'm right. Like, and the, and the polar bears are trying to struggle to get onto an ice flow. I've seen that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, here's the thing. <laughs> yeah. In winter time, that area is going to refreeze mm-hmm. because that's, it's so far, you know, towards the pole that in winter time, it's not going to get the sunlight. It's going to refreeze and reflect light again. And all you've really done is send an ice cube out into the oceans that's going to help further that very, very thin, but ultimately reflective surface ice in the future. Now, if you can understand that concept and how that cycle works, clouds are far more reflective, far more reflective. Now, if you can get your head around the concept that clouds are reflective and they reflect sunlight, how in the world do we get a greenhouse effect? Because if, 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 if they're going to be reflecting light, uh, how, how do we actually get that greenhouse effect if, if it doesn't get through? Well, We have a problem because this isn't Venus. The greenhouse effect works on Venus because they have dark clouds. It's a darker planet. And the clouds cover the surface. We can't see down to the surface of Venus. Anything that hits Venus starts to get absorbed, even in the the lightest clouds, which are yellow. That's much more absorptive than ours. And they want us to believe that if you blanket the planet in this same – in this same – white reflective material which is far more reflective at uh you know when you put it up in the sky in in those clouds than it is down at the ground as ice because that light is still going to penetrate through most of the troposphere at least once and then as it comes back up to reflect out into space you get it at the cloud level you get it much higher it doesn't even get down to the surface they want us to believe that that is going to warm the planet to death well, when physicists started disagreeing with this, and by the way, that is, the greenhouse effect is something that far more climate scientists who are on board with the global warming story agree with than do physicists, by the way. There are a number of physicists who don't like the idea at all. But so they invented this idea that um, low clouds are going to be the cooling ones, but high clouds are the ones that are going to warm the planet. Forgetting the fact that that's not the cloud cover that actually gets most increased under their own paradigm of global warming, but when stratospheric aerosols from volcanoes get up in into those high levels and could cause the volcanic winter or you know like nuclear winter stuff like yeah. that, we're talking about dark absorptive particles at the same level as the white reflective particles that they say are going to heat the planet. I mean, if you follow that, it literally made no sense whatsoever. 
back in the the 70s the conventional wisdom is yeah that that it wasn't a greenhouse effect that it uh, that it would be reflecting the the heat so uh and that's why you know i think it was even on the the cover of popular science or mechanics at the coming ice age or whatever uh anyway let's let's kind of delve off a little bit we've had some questions in the chat room about uh you know uh chemtrail or geoengineering and that's the reason that they you know if they ever do admit to doing it they're saying well we're trying to put reflective materials up there to reflect the heat off to pr- protect us from global warming. Do you want to get into that at all? Or? Uh, I would tweak it to say they're trying to reflect all energy from space because of our weakening magnetosphere. There is a phenomenal three-part article called Skyception. Uh, I believe it's titled uh, to be by Morpheus because he wanted to be anonymous originally, but it's actually Tony Rango uh, who's... Uh, <laughs> Let's just let's put the get, yeah. Get his name out. Go ahead. I mean, he he, he announced it a couple a couple. Oh, of okay, months. all right. I don't feel bad about that. But okay. <laughs> it, he very very clearly breaks down the evidence and the logic, uh, not only with what we're seeing, but what is possible, and in in the notion of you know just being. Uh, as simple as I can state it, that article does an utterly convincing job letting me know that what they are spraying, they are trying to stop what they know is coming because our our protection is collapsing. Um, <clears throat> I will say this, that you know what they're spraying are oxides, mostly aluminum oxides, but it really doesn't matter. They're all oxides. Um, if you're looking for a little bit of focus uh, for why they're doing this or what they're hoping for, they are ultimately reflective, but because they are oxi- oxides, they are oxidized, they are insulators, which means they are the exact opposite of what you would use if you wanted to say, you know, bounce a signal off them or try to make them uh, shake or propagate a wave through them with some kind of device. You would need a conductor up there, and an insulator is going to, one, stop the effects of any sort of scalar wave or other electromagnetic propagation, uh, and two, uh, it's going to stop the global electric circuit from being as devastating as, as it otherwise would have. Now, I know a lot of that sounds like, uh, oh, hey, this guy likes chemtrails, but uh, frankly, the fact that we're here having this conversation is proof that we don't need to play God in the sky in order to survive this and talk about it afterwards, because that's what we're doing now. And maybe it won't be us talking about it, but uh, it'll be our our children or our children's children, provided we don't do something stupid, like spray things in the sky. Now, from their perspective, they see it as triage. Cutting off your leg is a terrible idea. Do not do it. Unless you have gangrene and a doctor says, we cannot save this leg. You may want to get rid of the leg, or you're going to die. They know that when they spray, they're spraying themselves and they're spraying their children. These particles have a minimum airtime of one year. Most of them will be up in the air for more than two years. So if, for example, you see them spray over your head and you instantly or in the next couple minutes feel, you know, think you feel something, I do have to apologize. That is a bit psychological and based on some of the fear that has been put into you from some of the stories online. But the point is when they spray, they are spraying themselves. You know, like a pilot spraying at this moment, maybe sitting at a barbecue a couple years from now, 
and come in contact with what he sprayed today. He knows that. His children might be standing next to him. He knows that. But it's... Uh, so it's I had no idea that was that long of a time. It, there's If they do it at the right altitude, it can stay up for longer. Wow. Yeah, if you watch them for any length of time, you can see them spread out, and you can see the whole, you know, the sky get overcast from these things. I want to just add in here because it seems, uh, you know, just to kind of add a new perspective to it. But you know, Henry Kissinger's, you know, if you control food, you control the people, and we know that Monsanto is uh, engineering. Uh, you know, crops that are have a, an aluminum oxide tolerance, and then there's the uh, seed vault that they put in. So I kind of question if they're, this idea of total control of all the population, uh, if they aren't actually seeding the ground so that we can't feed ourselves, so that we can't well, grow our own or- organic food. So I'll let you go with there's, that. There's two parts to this. Uh, and another thing I'll say is, um, with what we're going to follow this up with about Earth's weakening magnetic field, uh, people need to realize that a lot of stuff that people call out as chemtrails isn't actually really chemtrails. A lot of things I'm going to say, you have to remember, I'm not I'm not a denier, but I'm a uh, perfectionist, so to speak. And uh, we all know that when there's tens of thousands of ideas about every last bit of uh, a theory, most of what you can find is wrong, just by definition. Uh, so, um, you know, what I would say is there's two parts to this one. They actually think they're doing something good, but they're doing it so that they can protect their place on this planet. They know that, you know, humans will probably come out of this. Uh, a lot of us would probably not come out of it so well or not come out of it at all, but humans would come out of this, but they like their position at the top of the pyramid with many, many cattle below them. They don't want that to be disrupted. And if this thing happens, it will utterly disrupt it and everything goes back to zero, everyone's equal and they lose their place at the top of the pyramid. Yes, a a side effect of that is far fewer people die and we cannot deny that that would be a good thing for us, but you know, part of it is that, you know, the more ca- the more people there are, the the larger the base, the higher you can build the pyramid, so to speak. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that there's not one powers that be there's the powers that be the small group that wants depopulation, Georgia Guidestones, agenda 21, things like that. The other one is, you know, the ones that want there to be a hundred billion people on the planet and them to be on top of them all. And they're diametrically opposed and they do battle up in a league that most of us don't know plays games because they don't sell tickets. And they don't, and, and they don't put the results in the newspaper. Can I just ask? We're we're talking about a weakening magnetic field that's going to right. be this cat. All right. So they're spraying this stuff. It, you're what you're saying is they're spraying this stuff that could take two years to get down to the planet, to, because they're trying to save us from the weakening magnetic field. Well, they're they're trying to save themselves, and uh, you know they they have a uh, if it works they can right rightfully say hey we saved you. Um, but you know, the, a, a smart person can say, all right, well, what were you really worried about? And it's not like you weren't interested in saving yourselves as well. Um, you know, it, it's the kind of thing where, uh, they've set it up very nicely. Uh, if, if things don't work out well, they've already done a good job blaming us. It's our fault. Right. Everything wrong right. with the climate is our fault. If things work out well, they're going to say they saved us. 
I'm I'm going to grab this. Uh, what, what's going to happen? All right, let's go to the worst case scenario. Worst case. What's scenario? going to happen if it doesn't work out? Well, it's not going to work out because you they can't control the power of the planet, let alone the plow, the power of the sun. And what controls cloud cover as much as the amount of vapor in the atmosphere is how much energy you can inject into it. And that energy mostly comes from either cosmic rays or solar energetic particles, things like that. And uh, what doesn't come from there is injected into Earth from our magnetic field and from our Van Allen radiation belts when we get whacked by the sun. Now, even when the sun is active, we don't get, you know, whacked, you know, 10 times a day, even at its most active times, maybe we'll, we'll get a whack every couple of days and then, uh, every couple of weeks, and then we'll go years without getting one. What really causes the injection of energy, the ionization is cosmic rays from outside of the solar system. Those are what create cloud condensation nuclei. They juice up storms. And by the way, nothing I'm saying right now is conspiratorial. This is all now mainstream science. They, they build clouds. They will juice up and grease lightning. They add to the global electric circuit that comes down in high pressure and gets shot back up in low pressure and in lightning storms with sprites and other things like that. And they're finding that the cosmic rays are what are going to drive the cloud cover, specifically the cloud cover we're worried about in terms of albedo, the reflectivity of the planet. Now, Earth is lucky enough to have two glorious shields against cosmic rays. One is ours. The others belongs to the sun. Now, ours, I've already mentioned, is weakening, and it's weakening fast, and it's going to continue to do so probably for decades to come. The sun's okay. magnetic field, as I just mentioned, and its activity, uh, and you know, the magnetic field that protects the Earth from the sun is based on its high activity, which has been ultra high for uh, hundreds of years, uh, peaking during global warming, which means it's blocking out those cloud-forming cosmic rays and allowing the planet to be less cloudy and heat up more. That shield just took a dive with solar activity, at the same time our planetary shield is taking a dive. And we are losing both of our shields against cosmic rays. And we noticed this first in 2011 when the critical frequency of the ionosphere was double or triple what it should be. Now, what this means is if I was standing on top of... Uh, you know, let's say you could build a building uh, that was as tall as, um, you know, airplanes fly. If I stood up there with a golf club and swung mm -hmm. it, I'd make a contrail. What? That's what it means. That is how ionized our atmosphere is. Now, here's something, and I'm going to remind everyone I'm not a chemtrails denier. I've read the patents. I've read the press releases that NASA has, you know, put out about releasing aluminum oxides from sounding rockets. Uh, so keep that in mind. Something that we have to realize is that 50 to 80% of the time we think they're chemtrailing over our heads, they are not. I issued a challenge to 300,000 people 
to one, call out a chemtrail, get video or uh, photo evidence. However, you must also submit evidence that one, there was not, uh, at a, you know, you know, the moisture in the atmosphere that would let those kinds of things occur, that there wasn't the relative humidity or there wasn't the atmospheric potential energy information that is, you know, that is also available. And if you're talking about, oh, hey, it's just one after another, they're gridding the skies, you must also show that you are not a, sitting below an air traffic lane that day, which switch around a lot, <laughs> but which you can find on the internet. Zero successes. Not one person was able to prove that the gritting out of their sky was not due to their being under a travel lane. Not one person was able to prove that the increased, quote, spraying that day wasn't happening on a day when there wasn't amazing amounts of moisture in the atmosphere there. Well, we're running out of time here, so I want to just switch. You know, we just lost uh, David Rockefeller. I'm sure everybody's weeping in the room over that one. And, of course, his family built their fortune out of, uh, you know, being snake oil salesmen and then ventured off into oil and made all their money in oil. And then right before he died, these last few years, the family is divested out of oil and is kind of going a lot into health care. So you had uh, just a brilliant piece the other day, and I want you to talk about it a little bit. Space weather health alerts. This is two minutes, and I want to just uh, sacrifice some time here and have you comment on it. What these space weather health alerts are is the culmination of the existing research on how solar activity and galactic cosmic rays, together known as space weather, can affect various aspects of human health like the cardiac system and blood pressure, neurological system, epidermis, especially for those with periodically flaring skin conditions, psychological aspects like anxiety, stress, or more serious conditions, cognitive functions, and more. More than 30 peer-reviewed works from the last decade or so build on nearly 70 years of detailed study on these phenomena from Russian scientists. Language barriers and politics kept much of that research confined to one hemisphere. However, the scientist's work has now spread across the globe and has allowed the door to be opened higher than the ground floor when it hit running in this country. So, back to this medical advice thing. I can't give you medical advice, but I can give you some common sense. For example, if your doctor has prescribed you baby aspirin or Bayer or whatever low dose of that they want some heart patients to take, and let's say you don't listen to your doctor and have no plans on doing so on a regular basis. If you get a cosmic ray health advisory or a geomagnetic storm alert or solar flare alert through the disaster prediction app and you happen to be feeling a little off, maybe take one that day. Maybe on that day, I'd advise you do listen to your doctor despite your personal freedom to do whatever the heck you want. However, if you want to continue doing whatever the heck you want, you may want to pay attention and make smart, well-informed decisions. If you can get that simple, logical advice example, which really isn't even considered medical advice, then you can understand how your decision-making might be slightly improved from time to time with the delivery of additional information about your environment based on decades of thorough and statistically significant peer-reviewed correlations between space weather and your body. Yeah, Ben, to go into that a little bit, that's fascinating. I mean, I'm at an age where, you know, I'm worried about my health all the time because I don't want to go into their, their, their medical system. I'm seeing it, and it's killing a lot of my friends. So what can you tell us? Well, what I can tell you is that if this thing is powerful enough to affect the weather and powerful enough to affect earthquakes and volcanoes, which we didn't get into, but I can assure you it does, 
we'll have you back on to talk about that. I swear to God, this is so awesome. You know, we are electric beings and we are connected to this electric world. Um, the exact mechanisms and the exact interaction patterns, uh, only, you know, we, we can only guess. But what we do know is that the patterns and the statistics are undeniable. And we don't necessarily need to know uh, the mechanics to fully understand some of the patterns and statistics. Just like our ancestors didn't need to think that the sun and moon were anything other than gods to realize that, hey, the sun was going to come up and then it was going to go down. They knew the pattern, but they didn't really have a full grasp on why things were happening. Well, that's sort of where we are with space weather. We don't exactly know how things are working, but we do know that space weather and cosmic rays have electrically changing effects on this planet. They start at the top of the world and they come all the way down to the ground and probably affect down into the mantle and the core. And we're sitting right in the middle of that. And they find that when we're sort of right in the middle of the road, when the sun is just slightly active and you know, we're getting brushed with sort of a little bit kind of like taking a nudging from the sun. That's really, really good. But you get away from that middle of the road equilibrium and you either get a drop out of solar activity or you get really high solar activity. And neither one of those is good for your health. Now, hearing that doesn't mean you're going to have a heart attack the next time there's a solar flare. It doesn't make you any more vulnerable than you were before you heard it. But what it does mean is that if you have a cardiac vulnerability or a psychiatric disorder or something else that is affected, you can actually gain more information about how your body's going to react on any given day based on what the sun is doing. We always get those, well, it must be a full moon tonight. All the, you know, the, the police cells are full or whatever. So, I mean, it, it, there, there's something out there that's affecting us on humans on a mass scale. So uh, this is uh, very good stuff. And do you want to get people into... People would have to get... I'm sorry to interrupt, Rob. People should get your disaster prediction app, which has this little health, like a health rating. That's yeah, what I wanted absolutely. to get into. Yeah. Yeah, you can. People can get that if you want to go online. If everybody's by their computers, um, you can go. Where's the best place? Space Space Weather News or the Disaster Prediction app? It's right there. There's a. Yeah, we we usually post about those alerts when they happen. Uh, you know, the next morning in the news. But if you want them real time, like you want to know the moment the danger begins, that you know the only way we have to get in contact with people at a moment's notice is if they get the Disaster Prediction app. And then it's as simple as going to the notification settings where, you know, you let me know how much you want me to bug you. And there's, some, <laughs> there's something called observers alerts, and those are the special cosmic ray alerts and other things like that we send out. Yeah, we, we've got to let people know about all these places that you're all over the place. We've got the suspicious observers. you got the, the solar report archive. Then you've got this stuff about the Earth's magnetic field. Then you've got the quakewatch.net, earthchanges.org disaster prediction app which is on google play and at the app store on apple how how what's the best way for people to get to you the best way for people to get to me is to go to either spaceweathernews.com and you know take a look at some of the stuff that's there or if they don't want to start as specifically as with the sun and they want to sort of get a broader view uh, start at either suspiciousobservers.org or earthchanges.org uh, I did sort of Hollywood that one up for, uh, you know, for people to share with folks who maybe weren't awake yet. So that yeah. it was a bit more what they were used to seeing. But the facts and the research there is all 
actually legitimate, and it really gives a good idea into why this planet and humans are uh, really just uh, the way we live on this planet really just is not uh, not going to be sustainable with what the Earth and magnetic field are going to throw at us. Is this why they're doing all these things? Like, um, what's that movie that just came out last year? Um, and you, I, I, one of your uh, videos alluded to uh, planet hunters. Apparently, they get people uh, looking for you know planets that will sustain human life, or uh, or possibly to get off the planet. So this kind of ties into the uh, Catherine Austin Fitz uh, black budget stuff. I don't know if you followed that at all. Yeah, well, uh, you know what they don't, you know, obviously, so much of the black budget stuff we don't get to hear about. I would, uh, I would advise that people. Uh, Think about how much they're directing our attention to exoplanets when they should be looking at our own solar system's moons and just what we might be doing and planning to do there because they're going to be just as habitable as anything else we find. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can believe that. And uh, let's see. Well, uh, and so I. Wait, I so, I, are you saying that we really do have to get off this planet eventually? Um, I don't know. I, I, I happen to. I happen to think that uh, you can take a look at a lot of the um, a lot of the space colony breakaway civilization uh, things like this. Uh, we cannot survive very well outside Earth's magnetic field. Yeah. If they if they found a way to 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 replicate the the Earth's magnetic field, the Schumann resonance, and a bunch of other uh, electrical aspects of this planet, maybe, but. We know those aren't on Mars right now. Those are not on the moon right now. Um, and they're not on anything we can see right now. Um, and so unless they've also found a way to basically cloak the universe, um, at which point you, you've gone way too far into conspiracy for me. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, wow, we just, we just jumped off a cliff there. Wow. Okay, cloaking the universe. But if they could start a magnetic field on an, like a moon or another planet, how come we can't fix ours here on this planet? Well, they can't actually do that. That would oh. be, I mean, they, they, what causes Earth's magnetic field is a combination of the power of our planet itself and our interaction with a star. I mean, that is what it takes to make this magnetic field. The notion that we could actually control it or anything like that, I mean, it, it's purely something that only lives in these conspiracy realms. Uh, so, so, like, for example, a, a magnet on your refrigerator is twice as strong as Earth's magnetic field at that very spot next to the magnet. But would you ever say that that magnet was more powerful than Earth's magnetic field? No, it's just at that one point you can say that about that, you know, little inch by inch area. If you can understand that, that is how absurd the notion that CERN uh, could do anything to the magnetic field is. And so it, CERN probably wouldn't be able to move an actual magnet 500 feet out the door. It's what are they then what are they doing down there? My goodness they're, they're gracious. Wasting, they're wasting a lot of money. And so it, here's, the, here's the kind of thing I would say. If a place like CERN or somewhere else ever actually does garner that capability and they turn it on, First thing, everyone with a pacemaker for thousands of miles is going to die. A Category 6 or 7 hurricane is going to form overhead. Every volcano near them is going to go off, and there's going to be magnitude 7 and 8 earthquakes because every last one of those things would happen before they touched Earth's magnetic field. CERN can't touch Spain. 
Well, we've run out of time. Ben, thanks right so much. <laughs> and everybody go to Suspicious Observer at YouTube. And when you're putting your shoes and socks on in the morning, watch that five, six-minute video because they are just fantastic. They're great stuff. Thanks, Ben. Right Thank on. you, Ben. Welcome to Shadow Citizen with Rachel McIntosh and Robo Cell.